Daniel 9 is considered one of the most important chapters in all Scripture, and especially the ending, which we address next time. It is interesting, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9 are similar in the sense that all three chapters contain long prayers. This morning we're going to address Daniel's prayer and extract some principles on prayer from Daniel 9. Principle 1, notice our prayer should be biblical. Our prayer should be biblical. Biblical meaning it should be consistent with Scripture. That doesn't mean our praying should consist of copious biblical jargon and language. I've heard some do that. That's not necessary. Biblical praying just means our praying and Scripture should match. Daniel was an old man at this time. He was in his mid-80s to 90. He wasn't sitting around in retirement. He was still a high-level government employee. He was a commissioner or premier. Remember, this was about 538 B.C., 538 B.C., and at that time, Daniel had just portions of the Old Testament available to him. He did have access to some of Jeremiah's writings, as Jeremiah was the last prophet to call the inhabitants of ancient Judah to repentance before the Babylonian invasion. So he read from Jeremiah. He read from Jeremiah 25. Notice verse 8. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, verse 9, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. That's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was called God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan until the end, and then he turned to God. He is called God's servant because God used Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan man, to serve his purpose in punishing the inhabitants of Judah. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. So God, through this prophet Jeremiah, predicted the Babylonian captivity. And he actually predicted the length of time the people would be held captive in Babylonia. Verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations, meaning Israel and some neighboring nations, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God said that this Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. The number 70 was curious to me. Why would God punish his people, permitting them to be captive for 70 years? Couldn't it have been another number? 17 years or 73 years or some other random number? The reason it's 70 years, and this is going to come into play next time, so don't miss this part. The reason it's 70 years is because the Jewish nation had stolen from God 70 sabbatical years. Let me explain that. God commanded the Jewish people to rest the fields 
and farmlands each seventh year. The seventh year was to become a Sabbath. Sabbath meaning a time of rest. So the land was to be left alone the seventh year so the land could rejuvenate itself. That meant God would bless the people's efforts at farming so that the previous crops would be enough to sustain them throughout that seventh year because year number seven um, meant the people were not permitted to plant and harvest crops. But, those were God's instructions, but throughout a 490-year period in the land, the ancient Jewish people violated those instructions. The people refused to rest the farmland and continued to push the soil, farm the soil straight through that seventh year because the people wanted more and more harvest. The people, greed got to them. So God was extremely upset at the people's disobedience. So the number seven, seven, representing that seventh sabbatical year that the people did not observe as they were instructed to, that number seven divided into 490 years equals 70 years. That's where we get the number 70. That number seven divided into 490 equals 70 years. The people had stolen 70 sabbatical years from God because the people refused to rest the land, so God punished them and permitted them to be held captives in a foreign nation a total of 70 years. Daniel continued to read Jeremiah. Notice Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after, notice, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, meaning at the end of this captivity period, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. This place meaning where Judah and Jerusalem had been located. We're going to read verse 11. Only because verse 11 is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the entire Bible. Verse 11 is on bumper stickers and t-shirts and greeting cards and it's some people's favorite verse. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Please understand something. This was a promise made to those Jewish exiles still held captive in Babylon. This was not a promise made to us. This future and a hope promised these people was the release from Babylonia and the return to reestablish themselves in Judah. I covered this in the series I did on the most misunderstood and misused verses from Scripture, part 8 to be exact, from that series. You might check it out online. We shouldn't steal this verse from those 6th century B.C. Jewish exiles and use it for ourselves. It was never intended for us. Daniel prayed, consistent with what Jeremiah had said about that Babylonian captivity. Notice, Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of 
Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes. Remember, the Medes and Persian Empire uh, conquered Babylon, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Remember, this was just after the Medes and Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire. Just after that. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, meaning scripture, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. All that we have read up to this point in this book of Daniel has happened during what we call the Babylonian captivity or sometimes called the Babylonian exile. Now let's do some historical review uh, just in case some of you haven't been here for this entire series. Remember in 931 BC, in 931 BC is a strategic date in ancient Israel. In 931 BC the ancient united nation called Israel that consisted of 12 total tribes was divided into two kingdoms. Ten tribes formed a northern kingdom that continued to be called Israel. And then two tribes formed a smaller kingdom in the south called Judah. So there's Israel consisting of ten tribes in the north and Judah consisting of two tribes in the south. I'm at Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, that southern kingdom. Now here's what happened to those kingdoms. In 722 BC, the ancient Assyrian Empire captured the northern kingdom of Israel and those ten tribes. Most, not all, most of its inhabitants were then assimilated after that capture, assimilated into that Assyrian population and are now known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Probably some of us have heard that, ten lost tribes of Israel. There have been for centuries all sorts of mysteries, legends, and traditions as to what happened to those ten tribes from the northern kingdom. One legend is called British Israelism. British Israelism, a false teacher named Herbert W. Armstrong. He died in 1986. Herbert W. Armstrong founded a church called the Worldwide Church of God. Now, if that's unfamiliar, probably some of us that are older remember going to a doctor's office and seeing a magazine called The Plain Truth. Anyone ever see that? The Plain Truth, that's Armstrong's magazine. At one point, it had a circulation of 8.6 million copies each month, more than Time magazine. Herbert W. Armstrong and his church, which essentially was a cult, promoted this idea. British Israelism said that those, quote, ten lost tribes from the northern kingdom migrated into Europe to what is now England. And all modern descendants from those Anglo-Saxons that settled in England are actually from there and are considered 
Jewish. So if we're from English descent, and unfortunately that's me, um, I, I wasn't permitted to select my parents. I, I just wasn't. Okay. So if we're from English descent, me, English, and Irish, if we can trace our ancestors to England, then according to this legend, Herbert W. Armstrong's teaching, this British Israelism, then we're considered Israelites. That people is heretical. I have been told I resemble the missing link, but no one has ever mistaken me for being Jewish. Okay? And in a technical sense, those ten tribes were never lost. But that's a subject for another sermon. So that was the northern kingdom. Starting, and this is review, we've said this often throughout this series, starting in 605 B.C., God used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire as an agent of judgment against this smaller southern kingdom of Judah. That Babylonian invasion started in 605 B.C. and transpired in three separate stages. And the end result of that was thousands of Jewish people from Judah were executed. Thousands more were brought captive into Babylonia. Um, at the first stage, it was Daniel and his friends and some others um, that were brought as captives and brought so that those men could be trained and developed to be leaders throughout the kingdom. But thousands of others were taken after that. The temple's valuables in Jerusalem were stolen. The temple itself was flattened to the ground. Houses were burned, and the entire Jerusalem region was left in desolation and ruins. Now get this. This is a side note, a footnote. The Book of Mormon, and that is the most sacred book uh, that our Mormon friends have, the Book of Mormon is based on the premise that some Jewish families from this southern kingdom of Judah escaped these families escaped before, just before Nebuchadnezzar finished his third invasion and wiped out Jerusalem. These families, according to Mormonism, constructed a ship, sailed across the ocean, and arrived on this continent and became the ancestors of Native American tribes and the Polynesians. That's Mormonism. Mormons believe that those founding families that originated in the southern kingdom of Judah, were the Nephites and the Lamanites. According to Mormonism, the Nephites acted in obedience to the Mosaic law and practiced Christianity, and the Lamanites were rebellious and did not. And then, Mormonism teaches the Lamanites wiped out the Nephites around 400 A.D. People, I'm sorry. There is zero, zero historical and archaeological evidence that those people groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites, ever even existed. That's pure, unadulterated fiction. Said. So after the northern kingdom had been captured, the southern kingdom, more recent, 
had been captured. And after those thousands of Jewish people from Judah were brought captive into Babylonia, God prophesied through Jeremiah that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years, as we just said. And at the end of that time period, God would permit those Jewish exiles that had been in Babylonia and their descendants, he would permit them to return to their land and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That happened in 537 B.C. 537 B.C., the decree was issued to permit the Jewish people in Babylonia to return home. So both the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and the return and restoration from captivity uh, for the Jewish nation to rebuild their homeland. Both of those, both the captivity and the return from captivity, were fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. All of that had been predicted. Daniel's entire prayer in chapter 9, from beginning to end, is biblical. Meaning Daniel prayed consistent with Jeremiah's prophetical announcement about Babylonian captivity. Daniel read from Jeremiah that God was going to keep his people captive in Babylonia for 70 years. And then after that, release them to return to Judah to reestablish that kingdom. Daniel believed what Jeremiah had said. But then something strange happened. Now don't miss this. In this prayer, Daniel started to pray that God would do what God said he would do. One more time. Throughout this prayer, Daniel prayed that God would do what God said he would do. On the surface, that seems strange and nonsensical. Because if God said he would do something, then God is going to do that something. So why should we pray about it? Because even when God reveals his intentions to us, as he had revealed them through Jeremiah to Daniel... Even when God reveals his intentions to us, he still expects us to pray over those intentions. And the reason we are to do that is so that we can conform ourselves to those stated and sometimes prophesied intentions. Daniel prayed that both he and his people would conform themselves to what God had said to the prophet Jeremiah he would do. It's possible the people could resist that decree to return and rebuild and could argue, no, 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 no. We're comfortable here. We're, we're comfortable right here. And besides relocating and reestablishing ourselves in Judah is a huge assignment, um, and we're just not into doing that. So the people could have said no. So Daniel was praying that God would convince the people to cooperate with him in that prophesied return to Judah. Sometimes we misunderstand the essence and meaning of prayer. Praying is not, is not an attempt to convince God to change his mind. If we believed that what God wanted was perfect, then why would we want God to change his mind? Praying isn't an attempt to get God, convince God, to adjust his program to what we want, but praying should be an attempt on our part to determine what God wants so that then we can adjust ourselves 
to his intentions and desire for us. And remember that what God wants is 100% of the time consistent with what God has said in Scripture. Let me cite an example of unbiblical praying. Praying that is not consistent with revealed Scripture. Um, I have mentioned before this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Um, This movement represents charismania, uh, which we mentioned last time. Uh, This movement is on the lunatic fringe, the edge of the charismatic movement. This movement is uh, increasingly popular, and there is an emphasis in congregations that are a part of this new apostolic reformation movement to encourage people to pray for resurrections. These congregants that are part of this movement are encouraged to pray for literal bodily resurrections from the dead. Now, the mecca of that movement is Bethel Church in Redding, California. Bethel Church is a mega church, probably averaging some 9,000 people. Uh, As a congregation, because of the erroneous teaching from Bethel and its increasing popularity throughout evangelicalism, uh, we want to distance ourselves from that movement. And so Barbara made the recommendation, and the elders agreed, and made the unanimous decision to not use songs from Bethel music in our worship. Not that there aren't some good Bethel music songs, because there are, but we want a complete, absolute disassociation from Bethel Church and the new apostolic Reformation movement, because it is a heretical movement. On Saturday, December 14, 2019, a two-year-old named Olive, I just can't pronounce the last name. It's a really out-there last name. Um, Olive died after she stopped breathing in her sleep. It sounded as though it was a case of SIDS, SIDS, uh, S-I-D-S, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Olive's mother is Kaylee who was a worship leader at Bethel Church, and she is a songwriter at Bethel Music. So after her child died, she sent out this prayer request. It said, notice, we're asking for prayer. We believe in a Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave, holding the key to resurrection power. And we need that power for our little Olive Elaine, who stopped breathing yesterday and has been pronounced dead by doctors. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. And then she said, notice, her time here is not done Her time here is not done, and it is our time to believe boldly and with confidence uh, to wield what King Jesus paid for. It's time for her to come to life. I agree. It is more than appropriate to grieve for Olive's parents and those close to Olive. 
uh, because SIDS is an incredible, tragic, and sad, sad thing. And I've buried children Olive's age and younger. And it's just, it's a nightmare emotionally. Uh, But it's pure presumption on the mother's part to announce that Olive's time here wasn't done. No one has the right to announce to God when someone's time here is done. God is the one that determines that. After that announcement, Bethel Church uh, uh, hosted large prayer and worship gatherings that consisted of public prayer and much singing and decrees and declarations and even commands and demands for Olive's spirit to re-enter her deceased body. As just an example of some of that, watch this video. gentleman on the platform with a microphone I understand is Olive's father. And notice the congregation was singing, singing, repetition, 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 again and again. Olive, come out of that grave, come out of that grave in Jesus' name. Olive, come out of that grave, come out of that grave in Jesus' name. And this went on and on. And it gets even more chaotic after that segment as Olive's father prophesied resurrection life into his daughter and people are just going nutso. Uh, This was tame. Where did that teaching come from? It came from a twisted distortion of the biblical text from Bethel's lead pastor, Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson is a, is a very well-known name uh, in the charismatic movement. Mr. Johnson's argument is that Jesus himself raised the dead, and Jesus did. Uh, we know that Jesus raised at least three people from the dead. I might add all three people died again after that time. 
In fact, throughout the Bible, the entire Bible, 10 people were resurrected from the dead. All of them died subsequent to that resurrection, except for one. His name is Jesus. He was resurrected from the dead and never to die again. But Jesus himself raised the dead and modeled raising the dead, according to Mr. Johnson. And so he, he uh, believes that Jesus has commanded us to do the same thing. That's the reason Bethel Church has a, quote, dead-raising team. Can you imagine? Uh, we have a dead-raising team. Would you like to volunteer for the dead-raising team? Bill Johnson came to that erroneous conclusion after misreading Matthew 10. Notice Matthew 10, starting at verse 5. These twelve sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. Verse 6, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 8, Notice these instructions from Jesus. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. So Bill Johnson reads this text and argues that Jesus has commanded us, as part of his church, Jesus has commanded us to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead. The problem is Jesus didn't command us to raise the dead. He commanded those original apostles to raise the dead. Notice verse 5 begins, Who these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Who were these twelve? Who were these twelve men Jesus sent out? Read the preceding verses and see that these twelve men were the twelve apostles. And their specific names are even mentioned in verses 2 and 3. These twelve are the twelve apostles. The last apostle was John. And he died as an old man on a prison island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea, just before the end of the first century. His death meant, as the last apostle to die, his death meant that the, the actual end of the apostolic age. And contrary to new apostolic reformation doctrine, that apostolic age hasn't been revived, and so there are now no more present-day modern apostles. There are apostles in the original historical sense. People do not exist. Someone might call himself an apostle. That doesn't make him one. He's not. He's not qualified. All the instructions to the church found in the New Testament uh, church and pastoral epistles from the book of Romans on through the end of the New Testament. In all of those instructions to the churches and to Christians and to pastors, no Christian is ever commanded to raise the dead. Praying for the dead has not been commanded to us. Praying for resurrections isn't biblical praying because it isn't consistent with Scripture. Uh, I should add, Olive didn't come out of that grave. God's answer to all that praying was no. I understand there was a memorial and 
she was buried. And all of that is sad, extremely sad. But the good part is, she's in heaven. And uh, her parents can see her again. Second principle. Our praying should be humble. Our praying should be humble. Verse 3. Then I, Daniel, set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I want us to notice four words from this verse that each describe the humble attitude Daniel had as he prayed. The first word is supplications. Supplications means entreaties and pleadings. That word was used to describe a servant in serious earnestness requesting, not demanding, requesting something from his master to meet his need. I don't understand people in the positive confession movement. The positive confession movement also out there on the lunatic fringe of charismania, uh, also called the name it and claim it movement, or the uh, blab it and grab it movement. Uh, It's the health and wealth movement. Uh, Famous proponents of positive confessionism are John Avazzini, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, also a part of that group, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, all of whom have made themselves extremely rich through teaching this false doctrine called the prosperity gospel. Now these people in this movement, in positive confessionism, argue that faith is a force. And if we pray in faith, using that force, confessing something we want from God, then God is obligated to give us what we confessed. We just, if we exercise enough faith, exercise enough of that force, and confess something that we want from God, then God is obligated to give us what we confessed, as if God is some genie in a bottle. No, God is God, and we are not. We should request things from God, but we have no right to demand something from God. Supplications, then notice, fasting. Fasting meaning not eating. And sometimes not eating and not drinking. Not eating and not drinking uh, constitutes a total or complete fast. And, And I don't recommend that. I think a liquid fast is preferable because we don't want to get dehydrated. I have an entire message on fasting. But in summation, understand fasting is never a means to get God's attention or a means to impress God. As if we could impress God, I don't think that's possible. Fasting does, though, communicate to God that we're serious about what we're praying about, and we mean business. Theologian John C. Wickham said, in essence, fasting is a practical means of neglecting time-consuming meal preparation so we have more time to concentrate on God. Fasting also has the additional benefit of reminding us to pray each time our stomach growls. And mine does all the time when I fast. And then notice 
the third and fourth words, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes. Those words are most often combined together and were used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize debasement and mourning and repentance. Sackcloth was an extremely coarse material made from goat's hair, similar to modern gunny sack material. It irritated the skin and was uncomfortable to wear. The person that mourned would put on sackcloth, sit on a pile of ashes, and then pour ashes on his head. One of the more famous instances of sackcloth and ashes was from ancient Nineveh. Nineveh located in what is now modern Iraq. Remember Jonah the prophet? After his adventure, he ran from God's instructions to go to Nineveh. And after his adventure inside the stomach of a giant fish, remember he'd been swallowed and was inside a sea creature. Some speculate it was a whale shark. Pretty sure Jonah developed an allergic reaction to seafood after that experience. Jonah ultimately made it to Nineveh. And he told an estimated 600,000 people in Nineveh, he told those inhabitants to repent. To his absolute shock, all of Nineveh did repent and demonstrated that repentance through putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. The people even put sackcloth on their animals. One commentator said sackcloth and ashes were used as an external sign of someone's internal condition. It was a visible manifestation of someone's sincere grief and or repentance. I would suggest that sitting on a ash heap, wearing irritating and uncomfortable sackcloth, and pouring ashes on one's head is an act of humbleness and humiliation and not of pride. And Daniel, the man we revere, did that. He did that as he prayed. He was humble. Number three, our, prayer, our praying should be confessional. Our praying should be confessional. This word confess means to admit to our guilt. Admit to our sin and guilt. Confession means we verbalize to God our sins. And we mean something more substantial than, sorry God, my bad. No. That's superficial. That's non-specific confession that's unacceptable implicit implicit in the confession of sin is the intention on our part not to repeat that sin now we might it is it's possible we might in a vulnerable moment after that repeat that same sin that does happen but at the time of that confession of that sin, that's not the intent on our part. The intention on our part in confessing that sin is to cease and desist committing that sin. Throughout this prayer, there are 11 different Hebrew words translated as some form of sin. And those Hebrew words are mentioned some 21 times throughout this chapter. And notice some of them as we read through this section, starting at verse 4. This is Daniel praying. And I prayed to the Lord my God. And notice, made confession. 
Daniel is confessing throughout this prayer and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant in mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Verse 6, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princesses, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, meaning our faces are covered with shame because of our sin. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princesses, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11, yes, all Israel, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. Why? Because we have sinned against him. Verse 12, And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it was written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it, brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteousness in all the works which he has done, though we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Do you know the solution to our problems as a nation? It would be for the President of the United States to stand up on television and publicly pray a prayer like that, confessing the sins of this nation. That would do it. Don't hold your breath. This is interesting that Joseph and Daniel... Joseph and Daniel, two familiar names, are the only major Old Testament characters that have no recorded mention of sin. No, there's no record in a biblical sense, no biblical record of these men committing sin. Now, we know that both men sinned because all men sin. So these men aren't innocent of sin, but there's no mention of either man committing sin. But in spite of that, Daniel confessed sins in his prayer. 
He confessed the sins of his people. And did you notice? He included himself in that confession. Notice the statement he made in verse 20. He actually summarized what he was doing throughout this section. Verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God. Throughout this prayer, 39 times Daniel mentions we and our and us. Daniel used corporate language, and that was important. Some time ago, because I'm still learning, um, I purchased a DVD course on preaching from someone, if I mentioned his name, probably most people would recognize him. And through that course on preaching, the instructor said that we should preach using the second person pronoun, you. He said, use the word you. His argument was that doing that causes the application of the biblical text to be more personal to the individual congregants such as, you should get your act together. You should repent. And you should stop that self-destructive habit. And you should learn from that experience. I understand the second person pronoun you is considered inappropriate in formal writing. But it is, I admit, sometimes appropriate in sermonizing. But most often, if you pay attention, listen to me, most often, I use plural first-person pronouns. I use the words we and are and us, just as Daniel did. Such as, we should do this, and our problem is that, and the blame is on us. I use we and are and us because we are each part of of this same spiritual organism called the church. We are all in this together, you and me. I preach nothing that isn't applicable also to me. The Old Testament prophets always identified themselves with the sins of their people, and I do the same. The Old Testament prophets never set themselves above their people. I should add, though, the Old Testament priesthood was some different in function. The Old Testament Jewish priesthood was sacerdotal in nature. That might be an unfamiliar word, sacerdotal. The word sacerdotal comes from the Latin word for priest and means to make sacred. The Old Testament Jewish nation was under a sacerdotal system. God selected Moses' brother Aaron and his sons to be the first priest and to minister to Israel. The priest taught the people scripture. Those priests offered, and this was a primary function, offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, and those priests also represented the Jewish nation to God. But that sacerdotal system is no longer needed because Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. The book of Hebrews, chapters 5 through 10, present Jesus as the ultimate high priest. 
and the fulfillment of Old Testament law. So through Jesus Christ, the entire legalistic system of sacrifice and ritual, including the priesthood, was made obsolete. Romans 10 verse 4 reads, For Christ is the end of the law, meaning the conclusion and end of the Mosaic law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The problem is Catholicism, most Orthodox congregations, and Anglicanism all still teach sacerdotal forms of worship. Sacerdotalism teaches a special classification of ordained men that are still considered priests and that the priesthood is essential to worship. Sacerdotalism teaches people must go to God through a priest in order to receive forgiveness from sin. People must go to a priest to receive communion or to receive some other form of grace. Divine blessings that are conferred upon someone are said to come through the church's ordained and sacerdotal priesthood. Evangelical Christians do not teach a sacerdotal religion. Nowhere does the New Testament use the word priest in relation to a special grouping or classification of religious men. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death for sins throughout the New Testament age, we are no longer need to go through an intermediary priest in order to get to God. We have immediate and open access to God on our own. I heard about a Christian woman in the hospital. Uh, She was undergoing some extensive testing to determine the nature of her problem. And there was a priest, hyphen chaplain, and chaplains are often priests, going from room to room visiting patients, which is a nice thing to do. And he came to this woman, this woman's room, introduced himself and inquired about her hospitalization. He was a compassionate and understanding man, as all the priests I've ever met are. And she appreciated that. But then before he left, he said, since I'm here, are there sins you wish to confess? I can grant absolution and forgiveness from those sins. So do you want to make a confession? She said, I'm not sure. Can I see your hands? This priest seemed puzzled at that request, but he showed this woman his hands. And she felt them. She examined them. And then she said, I'm I'm so sorry, but you can't absolve my sins. You're not qualified. The one that is qualified to forgive me has nail scars in his hands. And I'm sorry, you don't have them. Jesus Christ is the exclusive Savior and forgiver. And according to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, He is the singular mediator between God and man. And He has not assigned man the right to grant someone divine forgiveness. In addition, the New Testament teaches the priesthood of all Christians. And this is just one Verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you, 
And this is addressed to all believers in Jesus Christ. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And as a holy priesthood, notice, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All Christians, all Christians, in a sense, are priests. Meaning, from beginning and infantile Christians, through different maturation stages to the oldest and most mature Christians, all Christians are considered individual priests and part of a holy priesthood. And as priests, we are to offer God spiritual sacrifices. And this doctrine is called the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of all believers. The New Testament never mentions a specific ecclesiastical classification of mediation men called priests. There are bishops and elders and pastors and deacons. There are no priests. Our Catholic friends missed that memo, but in the New Testament there is no special grouping of ordained spiritual advantage men in the church called the priesthood. So it isn't necessary to confess our sins to another man. It is, though, necessary after salvation to confess our sins to God. We confess post-salvation sin not to maintain our relationship to God, because that relationship never changes. Because of salvation in Jesus Christ... God is our spiritual father, we are his spiritual children, and that relational connection never, never changes. We confess thin sin, though, as a Christian, in order to maintain closeness, relational closeness to God. See, sin interrupts our intimacy with God. And confessing that sin to God restores that intimacy and closeness. When we confess sin as a Christian, we receive parental forgiveness. Because God, after hearing that confession, forgives us as a father or a parent would forgive his child that would admit their wrongdoing to them. There was a Dennis the Menace cartoon. I mentioned him last Sunday. He was on his knees beside his bed and he was praying he said this dear God I'm here to turn myself in that's what we should do sometimes instead of being a stubborn obstinate arrogant pig-headed prideful governor Cuomo we should turn ourselves in why? Because we have sinned. Our praying should be confessional. Number four, and I must hurry. Our praying should be honoring to God. Our praying should be honoring to God. Notice the end of this prayer from Daniel, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. Your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Daniel said, God, because of our sins, we have committed as a nation 
and our fathers also sinned, we are reproach, meaning we are a disappointment, and we are an embarrassment to all those around us. Verse 17, now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant. Daniel said, please, God, please hear and answer this prayer. Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And Daniel's begging God at this juncture. And do this, notice, for the Lord's sake. Notice Daniel wanted this prayer answered, not for his sake, not for this, the exile's sake, but for the Lord's sake, meaning for the Lord's reputation and his honor. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, the temple, which is desolate. Daniel wanted the desecrated desolate temple at Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes, and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. That city was Jerusalem. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. Meaning, we have done nothing, God. We have done nothing. Nothing to deserve this. Notice, but because of your great mercies. Meaning Daniel wanted God to be merciful to him and to those exiles. Although none of them deserve this. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. Paraphrase, Daniel said, God, Everyone is talking about us being your chosen people. And the rumor on the street is, because we've been in captivity, and Jerusalem is in ruins, um, the rumor is that you have completely forgotten us. So in order to prove these critics wrong, and to restore your reputation as a covenant-keeping God, would you please bless us and return us to the land so we can reestablish ourselves and our homes and rebuild our temple and reinstitute our worship. Daniel was concerned that God's reputation would be marred if he procrastinated on freeing his people from captivity and returning them to their native land as he had earlier promised to do. According to verses 17 and 19, we just read, God called on Daniel to restore the Jewish people and Jerusalem for his own sake, meaning his own honor. E.M. Bounds, considered an authority on prayer, made the statement, prayer honors God and dishonors self. Prayer honors God and dishonors self. More than ever, we are a part of a self-centric culture. And that culture has saturated the contemporary church. Let me cite an example of that. Victoria Osteen is married to Joel Osteen. And both are considered co-pastors of Lakewood Church in Houston. She's often the one that first greets the congregation at the beginning of each service. She's on the platform. She greets the people. And some time ago, this is how she greeted them, and I'm quoting Mrs. Olstein verbatim. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. Then she caught herself. That, that's one way to look at it. But we're doing it for ourselves. 
Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. God wants you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. Now listen to this next line. When you come to church, when you come to worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. (laughs) When you come to church... And when you come to worship, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen? That's called a man-centric gospel. And people, that is a false gospel. And that's some of the foolishness that is Lakewood Church. Praying should be more about God and not about us so much. And that's the reason Daniel's prayer both begins and ends with God. We should stop starting our praying, itemizing this extensive listing of things we want from God. God, I need this, and God, I have to have that, and God, please do something and help me figure this thing out, and on and on and on. Don't misunderstand. God wants to hear about our needs, and God wants to meet those needs. But we should also learn to sometimes start praying, as Daniel did, through honoring God. Sometimes we should start praying as heaven's population does. Notice Revelation 7, verses 11 and 12. All the angels, not some, all the angels, this is in heaven, stood around the throne. This is God's throne. And the elders, these are 24 elders mentioned earlier that theologians believe represent us, and the four living creatures, these are four angel-like beings that are situated around the throne from Revelation 4, and fell on their faces before their throne and worshipped God. Verse 12, saying, this entire entourage, saying, Amen. Amen means so be it. It is a word of solemn affirmation and ratification. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want us to stand to our feet and I want us to repeat what we have just read out loud as we honored God. Revelation 7. Notice verse 12. One more time. Let's join that entourage in heaven. Let's say it together aloud. Saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's remain standing and honor God through song.